0: He looked at me like I was crazy. Now, you understand, that's not the first time that's happened. That's happened to me a lot in my life. But he looked at me like I was crazy. I was having a special speaker at my church in Texas, and his name is Don Piper. And Don has a pretty special story. He was in a car accident, and he was pronounced dead at the scene. It was a head-on collision He was coming back from a retreat and had a head-on collision with a a semi-truck. And paramedics got to the scene. They looked at the shape that Don was in. They pronounced him dead. And then they began to work other parts of the accident. But God had other plans for Don. During this period of time, a documented amount of time of 90 minutes, Don recounts in his book the things that he saw in heaven and at the end of that period of time, his body was revived, and by all accounts, it was and is a miracle. You can read about Don's story in his book, 90 Minutes in Heaven. And Don was coming to my church, and I was expecting a pretty big crowd to hear that story. And so I went to this little store we used to have. Maybe you remember it, this little store called Radio Shack. I, I, I remember going into Radio Shack, by the way, and, and seeing lots of cool stuff. I never knew how any of it worked. I just went in there for AA a batteries, but I would walk around in there and look at all this cool stuff. I didn't know what any of it was, but it was always fun to go in there. But they had a piece of equipment that honestly only they would have, and I needed it. It was a signal booster And it was going to help me set up another room where we could broadcast the the signal to another room and people could watch it just in case our sanctuary wasn't able to handle the crowd that was there. And so I went to the clerk at Radio Shack and, and told him what I needed. And he began to work through some transistors and some radios and some mutations of the alternating current and all that kind of stuff. And he finally found what I needed. And we get to the counter, and he says, hey, uh, what, do you, what do you need this for anyway? I said, oh, I'm so glad you asked. We're having a guy at our church tomorrow night who was tragically, tragically killed in a car accident. And he, I think he thought that I was planning a funeral. And this audio visual expert who you know, is, is what you would expect with an audiovisual expert at Radio Shack. I mean, he had about as much personality as, the, as a technical manual for a washing machine. He, he, he mustered up all the, like, all the empathy that he could gather in, in, in his being, and immediately his face changed. And he said, oh, oh, I, I'm, so, I'm so sorry. I said, oh, no, 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 don't be sorry. Don't be sorry. He's alive. He's he's alive. He came back to life, and he's speaking at our church tomorrow night. And the look on this guy's face, like, wait, you're here to plan a funeral for a guy who was killed in a car accident, but the guy that is supposed to be in the casket is going to be the one speaking. And I said, would you like to come? And he was like, no, no, I'm good. I'm, I'm good. And he had reason to be a little suspicious because, man, when you say, when you talk about somebody being dead, I mean, that's the end of the line. I mean, dead means dead. Game over. He's kicked the bucket. Deep six. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. It's, it's over. But what happened to our friend Don Piper is what we call A miracle. A miracle. It's when God does something supernatural to advance His kingdom purposes in the world. And as people of faith, we believe God does miracles. Now, the key part of this definition is when God does something supernatural to advance His kingdom purposes in the world. I mean, We would love for God to do supernatural things to advance our purposes and to help us get what, what we want. But the biblical definition of a miracle is, is when God breaks in and God does something to advance his purposes. And, and when we read of it in the Bible or when we read of what happened to Don Piper and, and other documented things that doctors can't explain and, and scientists can't explain, I mean, when we hear about those things, it appears to be completely impossible to us. It appears to be without explanation, but it's totally possible for God. All things are possible with God, and it's something that God completely understands. And be honest with me this morning. I mean, how many of, how many of us are a little skeptical? For, for, for how, how many of us this morning would say, you know, I, I struggle with the idea of a modern-day miracle? If that's you this morning, you're probably not alone. We live in what's called a scientific age. And, and I'm thankful for the advances of science. I, I'm glad that tomorrow if I have a fever and I go to the doctor, if I'm able to get an appointment, right? But if I'm able to get an appointment and go to the doctor, I'm glad the doctor doesn't say, huh, you're running 101 degree fever. I have some leeches in the back. We're going we're gonna to bleed you out a little bit and see if we can get some new blood in you. And we're just going to bleed that fever right out of you. Yeah, we don't do that anymore. Because of this thing that I'm so glad that we have and people of faith should embrace it in all of its forms, it's called science, and it's awesome. And because we have science, we have penicillin, and we have vaccines, and we have cancer treatments, and all kinds of things that are great, and they help us live longer and live healthier. But this is the scientific age that we live in. But there's an interesting side effect to living in a scientific age. It has naturally produced a skepticism. In some ways, it is our Tower of Babel. It is our monument of human achievement. And collectively, we say, look all look at what we've solved. Look at what we've done. Look at what we've been able to figure out. And scientists and and um and I mean and Philosophers, they, they say we're living in an age of modernity. And quite simply what that means is we're able to explain everything. We have telescopes that take blips of light in the sky that for thousands of years, for the first you know, recorded period of human history, humans would look up into the sky and they would speculate as to what those blips of light are. But now we have telescopes that take those blips of light and magnify them for us. And we see, oh, it's nothing really too spectacular. It's a planet. It's called Mars. And if we work really hard, we can design a rocket that will drop a four-wheeler off up there. And we can, have, we can control that four-wheeler with, a, with a, you know, like an Xbox controller here at NASA and collect rocks, take pictures of them, send them back. Yeah, it all started with a telescope, taught us how to get there. We have microscopes that, like, take matter and and break matter down to its smallest particle. We can look at carbon, and we can look at the molecules that form it, and we can look at the atoms that form the molecules, and we can look at the parts of the atom, the—oh, I'm going to get in trouble now—the protons— neutrons and electrons. Some of you will tell me if I got that right or not after, after service. I messed that up one time, and, and I heard about it. But we, we break things down to the, to the smallest particle, and we can explain things. Consequently, we've now become skeptical of everything. Technology is making our world faster. It's making our world smarter. We're in this age of modernity. Everything can be explained. Nothing is a mystery. And so for Christians, for people of faith, we're very skeptical when it comes to miracles. We don't have a theological imagination to think about God doing something supernatural. We don't have the capacity to think about God who created all that is seen and unseen, breaking into our world and doing more for us than we could manufacture and muster on our own strength. The guy in Radio Shack thought I was crazy. And it's not the first time somebody has thought pastors and or Christians were crazy. It's just that they think we're crazy for lots of other different reasons, reasons that I'm not really proud of today. People outside the church think we're crazy all the time. But church, what I wish the world thought of us as people of faith, I wish they thought we were crazy for having the audacity to believe that dead people can live again. I wish they thought we were crazy for having the audacity to believe that God loves us so much and is so interested in every detail of our life that by His grace and His power, He would break in. And manifest His great love for us. I wish they thought we were crazy for believing those things and not all the other crazy things we're known for. Several years ago, I was leading a team in the Dominican Republic. I think it was our second trip. And we were there with our partner church in El Factor. And we were introduced to a young man who had epilepsy. And he was going to work with us that week. And and so Pastor Felix told us about his condition and things that were going on and said, hey, while we're working... You know, we might be mixing concrete or doing something. I mean, he struggles with seizures. So he may have a seizure. If that happens, let us know, and, and, um, and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll apply first aid and, and try to help him through that. It's okay, it's good to know. We worked the whole week. He didn't have an episode, and uh, we were, it was the last night we were there. And our hosts had prepared an awesome meal for us, and we were going to sit down and, and eat together. And just as we had blessed the food and we were about to go through the line and, and all eat together, our friend began to have a seizure. It was one of the most violent uh, seizures that I, I've ever seen. I haven't seen many, but, but our, our friend just dropped to the ground. He began to convulse. The sound of his head hitting the concrete the first time is something I'll never forget. It's it burned into my memory. It, it was a violent seizure that he went into. And his friends were there. They knew that this could happen. They've seen this happen before. And so two or three of them immediately knew what to do. One of them braced his head and kept it from hitting the concrete. The others grabbed his limbs and kept his arms and legs from from flailing around and and hitting other people or harming himself. And then almost at the same time, instantly, the other people from the church, from the Factor church, they fell to the ground and they begin to pray in a chorus of prayer out loud. They begin to ask God to heal. They begin to ask God to alleviate the seizure. They begin to pray for his healing. And the Americans, we weren't quite used to seeing this happen. We have medication that, that treats seizures. We have medication that keeps people from going into these episodes. And so this was a little foreign to us. We weren't quite sure what to do. And then we see all these Christians on the ground with, the friend, with this friend praying, and then it just sort of dawned on us. Oh, oh yeah, when, when someone's in trouble, Christians pray. Oh, we should pray too. And so we go to the ground, and, and we join them in prayer, and, and we begin to pray and ask God to alleviate the seizure. He eventually came out of the seizure. But that night, we debriefed about that experience. And we were all agreed upon this fact. We were ashamed that our first inclination wasn't to pray. Our first inclination was, is there a pharmacy? I'm sure they have anticonvulsant medications. We can go and we can get some. We have money. We have resources. Let's go and, and buy some medication and help this person not have seizures again. Our first inclination was to solve the problem by our own strength not to pray. You see, our friends in the Dominican, they expected a miracle. They expected God to break in. They expected God to do something, and we did not. It wasn't our first inclination. And you might think they're crazy, but I just want to tell you today that that I think they're crazy in love with Jesus. I think they've learned a, a crazy dependence upon the Lord So that whatever they face, their first inclination is to bring it to God and and to pray about it. And it's something that I want to learn and hopefully we can learn together. But if, you know, living in this modern scientific world, if you struggle a little bit with the idea of a miracle, I just want you to know you're, you're not alone. The original followers of Jesus sort of did too. Pastor Aaron read the story that we know as the miracle of changing the water into wine. It's the first of the miraculous signs that happen in the book of John. John records seven in his gospel. And each one of these miraculous signs are told as John narrates Jesus on his way to the cross. And the intention is that the miraculous signs would reveal the glory of God and that people would respond to this glory that is revealed. They would see that, that now the Word has become flesh. The Word is alive and among us and has moved into the neighborhood. Jesus is human, and He's divine, and He is worthy of glory, and He's worthy of worship. And the intention is that these miraculous signs would lead people to believe and to put their trust in Him. And so here's Jesus at a pretty normal setting, a wedding. They happened all the time. Normal, ordinary, in some ways mundane, There was a predictable pattern to the day. Things were going to happen at a certain schedule and everybody was used to that and they were ready for that. And let me just say this about about, about marriages and weddings. Um, If you are about to plan a wedding or if your daughter or granddaughter is planning a wedding anytime soon, let me just tell you from experience, there's no such thing as a small wedding. There's no such thing as a simple wedding. There's no such thing as a cheap wedding, I don't think. Um, They're all normal. They're all ordinary. They're all sort of mundane. Until it's yours. Then it's the most amazing wedding ever. Then it's the most important event on any calendar ever. And things can get out of control pretty quickly. But for the most part, Jesus was in a setting that was was pretty common. It happened all the time. And they were in a tight spot. Someone didn't do their job. There's one of two things that happened. Number one, somebody didn't order enough wine. Somebody severely underestimated how much wine they were going to need. Or, number two, somebody let everybody drink whatever they wanted. There was no limit to how many trips you could make to the open bar. And someone needed to regulate that a little bit. And so either they didn't regulate the bar or they didn't order enough, but all I'm saying today is they had a problem. And who, whoever's in charge of the drive through line at Chick-fil-A would have solved it. Like that never would have happened, okay? But they weren't there, and so now we had a problem on our hands. It's a pretty big deal. It's a pretty big deal. And it was going to be a, a source of great embarrassment to the bridegroom, to the host of the wedding And so they go to, uh, Jesus' mother finds this out, and uh, she decides to get Jesus involved. Look at verse 3, John chapter 2. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. And Jesus looked at her, verse 4, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. Now, if you have your Bible open, I know this is going to be difficult for you to see. It's kind of dark here in the sanctuary. But, but my Bible, it's the NIV version. It's the latest, uh, the 2011 version. And it's very helpful. Sometimes the translators will put little footnotes in there. And so verse 4, Jesus addresses his mother with this Greek word for woman. And it's got like a little footnote. So F. I'm going to look down here at the bottom of the Bible. What does the translator want me to know F? It says this, the Greek for woman does not denote any disrespect. Well, I'm glad the translator told us that. Because if I called my mama woman, it would not go well. It would not go well. Sometimes I feel like calling her woman. Like, woman, are you serious? But, but I don't do that. She listens to this podcast, by the way. So, hi, mom. How are you? Love you. But I, no, we don't do that. We don't do that. But, but obviously, Jesus did, meant no respect by that. But Jesus' mother comes to him and says, hey, we, we don't have any wine. And, and he objects because he says, my hour has not yet come. Now, you're going to hear of the hour that Jesus came for. It's over in John 12. He says, the hour has now come to glorify your name. And Jesus says also in John 12, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And so, the hour, the the appointed time or the appointed season for what Jesus had come to do was the cross. It was this moment in which he stretches himself out on a cross and he is lifted up from the earth. And in lifting him up from the earth, he is proclaiming to the world just how much God loves them. He's willing to send his one and only Son that whosoever would believe might have everlasting life and trust in him. So, that's the hour. That Jesus came for. And so Jesus says to his mom, hey, this is not my hour. This is not the, the reason that I came. I, I didn't come here for, for party tricks. This is not why I came. But the story illustrates God's involvement in every single detail of our life. Someone was going to have a really bad day. It was going to be incredibly embarrassing. It was going to be a really bad day for the bride, for the groom, for the host of the banquet. And Jesus' mother knew that her son could do something about it. And so she involves him. And Jesus gets involved in this smallest of details when you think about all that he came to do. And I want you to know this morning that there's no aspect of your life that God doesn't want to be involved in. The God of miracles is interested and invested in every detail of our lives. There is no detail too small. There's nothing going on in your life that is insignificant to Him. He's a God of miracles, and He wants to be involved in your life from the first to the last, from the Alpha to the Omega, from the A to Z, from every detail of your life. He wants to be intimately involved. And yet, people of faith, Why is it we only come to him with the big things? Why is it that we largely live our life disconnected from his supernatural power? We largely live our life pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We largely live our lives doing our own thing, on our own strength, with our own resources. And Jesus' mother is inviting us to embrace a different way of seeing our life of faith. Jesus' mother is inviting us to think about God being involved in every detail. What would it look like for us to surrender every detail of our life to Him and to ask Him to be involved in all of it? What would it look like for us to wake up every morning and for our lungs to fill with air and to just breathe this prayer to say, God, this is your day? From the start to the finish, this is your day. I want you to be involved in all of it, in all I say, and all I do, and the decisions that I make. Would your supernatural power and presence be a part of what goes on in this day? What would that look like? I think for starters, if we want to have that kind of posture in our, in our faith, we have to listen to what, again, Mary says, verse 5 his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. Do whatever he tells you to do. Mary can say this. Do you remember Luke's account of her life, Luke chapter one? This is the same woman who said, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. She has lived her entire life surrendered to the will of God, and she is saying to these servants in this really tricky situation, just do whatever he tells you to do. Just surrender completely to whatever his plan is. Live a life of obedience. And that's a a lesson for us, because obedience puts us in a position where we must trust God. When we are surrendered to the will of God, when we take our hands off the steering wheel, when we say, God, this day is yours, have your way in my life, we are putting ourselves in a position to see God move and to see God do things we could not do on our own. And so in obedience, we become vulnerable, we become dependent upon God, and we, we're in a posture to see God move. You see, it's not that I, I, I don't think God is not moving when we're pushing the buttons and pulling the levers. I think God's at work. God hasn't given up on any of us. I mean, even when you decide to push the buttons and pull the levers because you're so smart and you're so resourced and you got a plan that's better than God's, God hasn't given up on you. He's still at work, but you are not in a position to see it or surrender to it because you're doing all this. You're the one making it happen. But when we adopt a posture of obedience, we we get perspective to see God at work. We get perspective to see that his plan is, is better than ours. And so Mary invites the servants, hey, take a posture of obedience. Do whatever he tells you to do. And so Jesus asks them to do a pretty crazy thing. Like inviting a Radio Shack clerk to come hear a dead man speak. Jesus invites them to get six stone water jars. Fill them to the brim. Uh, Jesus. um, So we we have plenty of water. (laughs) There's no shortage of water. See, what we have here is a shortage of wine. Okay? So we just want to make sure you are aware of the situation. Jesus asked him to do something completely crazy. How many of us would balk at that? By the way, these stone water jars, they were used to purify people for worship. There there was a cleansing process that would have to happen. And so they held 20 to 30 gallons. Like, that's a lot of water. And if God asked me to go fill up a, a sippy cup, like, I could do that. I don't have a whole lot invested in that. But God asked these servants to go fill up a jar that holds 20 to 30 gallons. Actually, six jars that hold 20 to 30 gallons. He asked them to do something completely crazy. But what I want us to see is that these vessels, not only did the servants obey and do what Jesus told them to do, but the vessels were empty. They they were completely empty. They had nothing in them. And make no mistake about this miracle. The miracle starts with an empty vessel. And how many of you come into this place and you feel like an empty vessel? You want to hear some good news? God works through empty vessels. You come into this place, you're saying, "I I got nothing left to give." I'm facing problems I've never faced before. I've, I've, I've thrown out every answer that I can imagine. I've got nothing left to give. I'm empty. I've got relationships that are completely broken and dysfunctional, and I've got people fighting in my family, and I've tried to get in the middle of it and solve it. I've got nothing left to give. My marriage has never been in a worse place. We're fighting with one another. We can't get on the same page with our finances or how to raise our kids. I got nothing left to give. My finances are a mess. I've made terrible decisions. Nothing's worked out the way I thought it would. I got nothing left to give. There's problems at work that people are expecting me to solve, and I can't solve them. I've got nothing left to give. I'm in the midst of grief. I've lost someone that I love. I depended upon them. I needed them every day, and now they're not here, and I'm feeling empty inside. I got, I got nothing left to give. I'm I'm empty. Did you hear this good news of John chapter 2? That God works through empty vessels. And friend, your emptiness is not wasted. Your emptiness is not without purpose. You are are in a place in which you feel empty. But God has led you there by his providence and he has kept you there by his hand and he has put you in a position so that you might be filled filled with his supernatural grace and his supernatural power and his presence. If you're feeling empty today, it's an opportunity for you to be filled with all the goodness and blessing that God has for you. God works through empty vessels. So the servants obey. They take the empty vessels. They they fill them with water. And then they bring out a little bit, expecting it to be water. And somewhere along the way, from dipping out of the vessel and going to the master of the banquet, the water becomes wine. And the master of the banquet tastes this and says, wow, this is good stuff. What year is this? This is vintage stuff. How'd you, how'd you get this? Everybody normally saves the cheap stuff for last, but, but you... Man, you guys went all out. This is the most lavish wedding I've been to. You saved the best for last. And not only was it the best at the end of the wedding, but there were six jars each holding 20 to 30 gallons of this stuff. How many of you want to be at that wedding? Man, I think the last part of that wedding was probably better than the first. They weren't going to run out. This is not the uh, message on temperance, by the way. But <laughs> this is a message of a miracle that God does, not only of quantity, but quality. And think about the story of God. Think about all that God has been doing leading up to this moment. Jesus was promised by the prophets all throughout the Old Testament. The people of God are waiting for a Messiah. They're waiting for someone to come and to redeem them and to save them and and to do what God had planned and purposed before the creation of the world. And finally, the Word becomes flesh. And here in this wedding, in Jesus' first miracle, the master of the banquet proclaims, You've saved the best for now. And that's the gospel that Jesus is the best of what God has to offer, and he is more than enough for what you are going through right now. And what God wants to do in your life is good beyond measure. It is good beyond measure. You may come into this place, and you may be thinking that your best days are behind you, but I'm telling you, friend, If you're alive today, if there's air in your lungs, if there's blood coursing through your body, the best that God has for you is today. That God wants to do something special in your life. The the blessing He wants to pour into your life is good beyond measure. And He wants to heal your marriage. He wants to alleviate your pain. He wants to perform a miracle in your life. He wants to take away your grief. He wants to walk with you through the situations and the things that you're going through. He saved the best for now. Will you trust him? Will you do whatever he tells you to do? Will you surrender to his will? I want you to see how the story ends. Pastor Aaron read it. It ends like this, verse 11. What Jesus did here... In Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. I'm going to leave that up on the screen. And I want you to see very carefully what John is doing there. He's he's concluding the miracle and he's reminding us of where it took place. He's saying what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee gives us three markers very specific. That God broke in in a supernatural way in this time, this place. I could take you to a map and I could show you where we think Cana of Galilee was. It's a very specific place, has GPS coordinates. You'd probably need a GPS to find it, but that's the kinds of places that God is at work. But John is very intentional to say that in this specific place, in this moment, in this, this, this time in which the bride and the groom, they could have been embarrassed. It could have been a really awful scenario. Things could have been a disaster. But here in Cana of Galilee, God broke in and he did a miracle. And what I want you to do this morning is I want you to think about the, the thing that you're going through right now. And I know in a a gathering like this, it's all over the map. I know there are people here in the throes of grief. I know there are people here with physical needs. I know there are people here that are just emotionally not where they would like to be. I know there are people here that are experiencing broken relationships. We're all over the place in terms of what we need from God. But what I want you to do is I want you to take that situation and I want you to plug it in where John says here in Cana of Galilee, I want you to plug in your need. And I want you to trust God that this is going to be the epilogue of what you're facing right now. To say what Jesus did here in my marriage, what Jesus did here in my grief, what Jesus did here in this burden that I have for my kids who are far from God, What Jesus did here in this physical ailment that I need healing of, what Jesus did here was a miraculous sign. And he revealed his glory through this emptiness that I've been experiencing. And because of this emptiness that I've been experiencing, as God revealed his glory and as I surrendered that to him, disciples believed in him. That is what God wants as the epilogue to what you're going through right now. Do you trust him? Are are you in a place where when the scripture says, do whatever he tells you to do, are you at that place? Are you at that place where you can surrender to that? I believe that's where it starts. I believe that's how the miracle starts when we come to a place where where we're just surrendered to what God wants to do.